You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. So Jess, I know you and Tom talked with Rob Waldron, the CEO of Curriculum Associates this week, about his leadership and the company's story. So tell us more about that. Yeah, Tom and I had a great conversation with Rob. And as you might already know, Kat, Curriculum Associates is a rapidly growing education company that has a clear focus on service. Their mission is to make classrooms a better place for teachers and students, while also focusing on being a really great place to work. And they're clearly excelling at that, because for the second year, the Boston Business Journal has recognized them as a winner of their annual Best Places to Work Award. Nice. Yeah. So Tom and I wanted to learn more from Rob about how they got there and what he's doing to hire, develop, and retain a really high-quality team, while also being what Tom would say is one of the most interesting and successful ed tech companies in America. Well, great. Let's listen in. We're here with Rob Waldron, the CEO of Curriculum Associates on the Getting Smart podcast. Rob, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. Curriculum Associates has quietly become what we think is the most interesting, probably most successful ed tech success story uh, in America. And I, I don't think many people know about that. And it's such a fascinating story from, uh, from many different standpoints. Uh, Rob, you've been there uh, about five years, is that right? Eight years. This is not a startup. It's a, a 40-year-old company run for most of the time by, by Frank Ferguson, Tell me about how you met Frank and why you decided uh, CA was an interesting opportunity. Well, sure. Happy to do it. And uh, just as a uh, uh, as we get into September here, Frank uh, turns uh, 90 years old on, on wow. September 11th. So uh, a happy birthday to Frank. And uh, I was uh, with a, uh, another CEO friend and um, looking, uh, I, was ha- I was having a transition in, from a prior uh, role. And he asked what my uh, what kind of job I want, and I said I wanted to you know be back in an education organization. And he said, No, no, no. What's your ideal job? And I said, Well, I want to run a twenty five to hundred million dollar K twelve company that makes a huge difference to uh, children, uh, is mission oriented, doesn't answer to private equity, and I want it to be thirty minutes from my house. But you know what? Life's not ideal. And he said, Well, you should go see Frank. He has one of those. And uh, that was a bit of a surprise. And so I called Frank. And told him that story, and over six months, Frank and I talked together, and he invited me to to join. And uh, in the first year that I started, uh, I was sort of the president, and he could fire me on the blink of an eye. And then after a year, the the deal was that I would kind of take over for him and become CEO, and and uh, we would go from there. So the interesting thing is that Frank invited you to join a very non traditional organization. This is a for-profit company, but uh, Frank announced that he was going to contribute the majority of the stock to uh, to a charitable trust, right? So this is a bit of a hybrid organization. That's right, Tom. And we, it's something we did together. He, When we started together in 2008, he was trying to figure out how to go to the, to the next place for CA and transfer of ownership. At the time, it was a, a C-Corp, I think it was, and uh, it's subject to what the Republicans call the death tax, where you... You have to pay 50% of the value of the company to the government, um, and you know there, there wasn't enough cash for that, so you would have to sell the company to, to pay the tax. And so we worked together on how to do that, and we came across a, a way of, of kind of giving away his share. So I own a little part of the company, and the majority is held by, by Frank, and we've had to go back and forth to different uh, mechanisms for that. But relatively soon, it'll be announced uh, where Frank's gift will be and who, who are the beneficiaries of that gift in our 
our company at, at some point will uh, be partially owned by these uh, charitable organizations. And with that came a long-term contract. Um, and the combination of the, this really long-term contract and this hybrid structure, I think, gave you the, the gift of the long view. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. I didn't realize uh, how much of a competitive advantage it would be when I first heard about it. Frank, uh, about a year in, told me that in order for my equity to vest, it was a bit of a surprise that, uh, that I would have to stay 20 years. And if I left any time voluntarily before that... I wouldn't get anything. And because we hadn't changed the ownership, that was a huge surprise and a little different than I thought. So at first, I, I had the normal reaction that I think most MBAs would have in that moment where I thought, I'm never going to agree to that. Uh, but after thinking about it for a long time and, and realizing it, the opportunity that was here at Curriculum Associates to make change, to make a difference to children's lives, to personally fulfill some of my own ambitions, uh, that, uh, that it was a good idea. And so I agreed. And um, that's that's what we've done, and it was uh, my ownership is is related in part to uh, to that long term view. And I now realize what a huge competitive advantage that was. I, I think in our industry, Tom, the people have bought and sold, flipped things uh, right. sometimes within every year or two, and many of the people who've been through that are sick of it. So when I was able to attract talent, uh, I was able to tell them we had this different structure, and and we were able to. Uh, to garner unbelievably good talent that we might not have been able to to get if if we hadn't had that structure. All right, I want to come back to that. But Rob, you this isn't your first rodeo. You, you've had success scaling a business, so I uh, I want you to think back to your days at Score and what what lessons did you learn about scaling a business in in Score and were they directly applicable at Curriculum Associates or not? Uh, I think. A couple things were, Tom. One is I, I once heard from someone when I was back when I was running SCORE and then Jumpstart, the nonprofit that I led and, and was able to grow aggressively, that it's easier to be an outstanding recruiter and an average manager than an average recruiter and an outstanding manager. Uh, so I took the easier route and tried to be an outstanding recruiter and an average manager. Uh, so there was a huge focus on talent, getting talent right. And I think in our industry, you mentioned this and different things you've written, Tom. There's thousands of little decisions that make our work right. So that's not always true. If you're in a pharmaceutical company and there's a group of scientists that discover a compound that leads to the cure of a disease, it's really those scientists that are leading to the change, something that is intellectual property that stays. Yes, there's many other people in the organization trying to help and support, but it's really the scientists that drive the the change. Uh, In our case, every little decision matters. So that has to do with how quickly a report comes up on the screen, how user-friendly that report is design-wise. It matters exactly what the person says that's doing professional development in the classroom, the speed with which something goes over the internet and doesn't break down, the clarity of a page uh, of collateral. All these little decisions make a huge difference in classrooms. And when you, when you have a, an industry like our ed tech industry that's driven over thousands of little decisions rather than one great insight like a pharmaceutical drug, right. uh, you better have outstanding talent at every single stage wow. of that process. That, that is a super interesting observation. So the, Mike Feinberg, founder of KIPP, said this in a podcast a month ago. And it, it's certainly true that running schools, that it is the sum of thousands of decisions by 
individual teachers and by uh, the you know collective teacher groups that make a school a great one. And in our business, it, it is it's often the way a, a product is used that is even more important than the product itself. And so this product of little decisions is true both on the on the product development delivery side and on how it's deployed and used, right? Absolutely. And and that's the other thing. Well, just to follow up on that, the thing that's different than most product organizations and other industries is that the service component for our industry is so significant. So I feel much more that I'm in the service business uh, than in the product business. Now, I know people buy our product, they want to buy our product. But when you talk to people after 12 months of having iReady in their school, they are talking about implementation, service, professional development, account management, a number of other things uh, in addition to the product. So Kat, it's easy to see now why Curriculum Associates, and more specifically Rob's journey there, is such an interesting story. Next, we'll hear from Rob about talent acquisition and development. A few fun facts for our listeners first. Rob spends over 50% of his time on recruiting. Yeah, he interviews every candidate that makes it to the finalist round with a few exceptions during vacation times, but he even interviews their summer interns. That's great. Last year, more than 8,000 people applied for a position at Curriculum Associates, while only 2% of those candidates were ultimately hired. Wow. As you'll soon hear Rob say, at Curriculum Associates, they hire people, not positions. Let's talk about talent acquisition, then we'll talk about talent development. But what, what, what is it you look for, and what does that hiring process at Curriculum Associates look like? Uh, well, great question. So, I, I mean, I think uh, most people who work with me on this topic think that I'm certifiably insane because I'm super deliberate about it. I've, I've interviewed, uh, I every, interview everyone, including the summer interns. I've, in the last three, three years, I've had well over a thousand interviews uh, myself uh, because I won't allow anyone to come to CA without, without an interview. There's been a couple of exceptions when I've been on vacation, but very low. Those were and, out okay. <laughs> they, they're still here. Thank goodness. Um, so what the first thing is that we need to be great at lead generation. So 80% right. of the people who have joined our company did not, or 85%, I believe, uh, did not come from a, from any kind of application. They came from word of mouth. Wow. So we only hire one in nine. We interview, we have many more applicants, but one in nine, we interview the process that is very set. We have special software that uh, helps us gather all this information. Different people are tasked with different types of interview questions uh, to keep that uh, connected uh, and flowing. And um, we have big debates about who the talent is. But the big thing that I think is a little bit different is that we're we're great at lead generation. In the beginning, that was very hard because we weren't as well known. We were a little workbook company out here in uh, suburban Boston that was hard to get to. And, you know, now I think a little bit we've won the Boston Globe's best places to work several times and other awards uh, for being a good employer. And so we, we are a little bit more of an employer choice, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, so we had to really work hard to, to get that. We do ask every single person who comes to the company, the five to 10 best people they ever worked with in their lives. And uh, we keep track of who those people are and we go meet those people regardless if we have a position. And the final thing, Tom, is we, hi- we try to hire people, not positions. So yes, we have slots to fill, but we look at people 
and whether those people work out in any way in the organization rather than trying to just shove someone in our slot. How do you keep them uh, moving? What does talent development look like at Curriculum Associates? Well, I'd actually say that we're, we're imperfect at that. We're, but the, the number one we keep, keep it moving is we've, we've grown right. quite a bit. So, uh, you know, our, our company um, in the last four years, I don't have it in front of me, I think it's more than quadrupled uh, in size. So, you know, we have 620 full-time staff today. Just even 18 months ago or two years ago, we probably had 300 staff. So it's really accelerating. Um, so that is leading to new opportunity, right. new roles, and that creates its own professional development. Yeah, it does. Um, we obviously pay a lot of attention to uh, to mentoring and feedback. So we're we're very good at at gathering feedback to see where we stand. Sometimes we've had events where we just go away for a day and a half with 30 to 50 people to know each other better and do some exercises that I've learned from young presidents organization. But to be honest, I, I'd still say that that part of organizations emerging. And uh, while I think we're one of the top recruiters in the nation uh, on that side of things, I, I think we're still, we have, still have a ways to go. All right. I want to get to the, the, what I think is the heart of the story. So Curriculum Associates was a successful workbook publisher when you showed up, and today it's a leading uh, software provider. Um, and you, in particular, developed uh, what we think is the best adaptive learning system out there with a with a companion print program. So, really, a great blended learning program. So, you developed an adaptive learning program and sold it as a software as a service. I mean, that bears no resemblance to the work uh, book business um how did that happen was it was it a great product idea that you hired for or did you hire great people that helped you shape that what's the like what's the iReady product development story yeah i think the the headlines of that story tom are fear and talent so on the fear side when i got here we were licensing uh, some software from a company that just had 8 to 9 people uh, that that product started to take off. People were really buying it, but it became very clear to me that the company that was making that, that we licensed it from, was incapable of serving us, growing, um, and uh, doing what was needed for our customers. And that scared the daylights out of me because we were selling something that I thought in a year or two we couldn't stand behind. So and the rest of the company, the print company, this is 2008 and 2009, was declining and as you recall, the world was falling apart and companies that were like ours were starting to go bankrupt or go out of business. We had no access to outside capital, uh, no money, and I was scared to death. And uh, I went to see a group of people who happened to be truly outstanding. Andy Smith, our CTO, Renee Foster, our now president, and others, and said, you have to figure out how to make this yourselves and you have nine months. And they thought that that was crazy, but... Uh, if we actually had known how difficult that was, I'm not sure we would have right. tried. Uh, but uh, again, you know, the talent was there and the, the look for talent, you know, our CTO is an example um, by constantly looking for talent is my daughter's best friend's father, um, who I would see on the soccer field, was about to take the CTO of a TripAdvisor job. And somehow I 
got to him at just the right time through kind of, I didn't know him that well, but I knew his, you know, his daughter was coming over to play. And if he had not come aboard at that time, I, you know, I wouldn't have made it. If three or four other people had not come aboard at that time, we would not have made it. But um, we dug in, we delivered it. It wasn't that good in the beginning. Uh, we quickly made it better. It was so nice to have a long-term view and not have, you know, a large investment firm breathing over our neck trying to get profit out of it right, right. away. Frankly, fear, 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 fear was what saved the day because we would have gone out of business if it didn't work. I, I want to note the, the sort of paradox of time here because you, on one hand, you had a long-term view. On the other hand, you didn't have a lot of money and had the need to move fast. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's true I had a 20-year view. Uh, in 2008, there was uh, an ongoing entity concern with Kirkham Associates. It was very unclear. So that'll get you going in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I suddenly took a job. My career's here and I unfold what's happening and the world economy starts to collapse just right. after I get here. And either I'm going to pull this thing out or it's going to go under and it'll be my fault. So uh, there's a little Waldron luck, proud of everything we've accomplished, but we did the right thing and we, we made it through, but it, it wasn't always clear. And then by 2010, when, when it just started, the wind started to hit the sails and right. people really were giving us great feedback. It was still screwed up. We started to know that we, we have a company here. It was unclear how long it would take us to, because iReady wasn't really made, but we, when we made it enough to know for ourselves that it was going to be strong, we thought by the time we get to 2011 and launch this, we're going we're gonna to be okay. And remember, the recession in schools right. was really 2010, not 2008. Right. It didn't really start coming back till 11, 12. Yeah. So, Rob, the, the company had sold a product, and you, you were pretty sure what you were getting up front. And now that a large part of your sales are software as a service, you've described that as entering into a partnership because part of what you get with software as a service is the promise of the future. It's, it's who you want to go on the journey with, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think I, I, I use those words. I think you probably read that somewhere, but not what is the product today, but where is it headed? Because right. what's the trajectory? We have, you know, 99% rule of our top 100 customers. And what matters to them is what are we doing next year, the year after, and so forth. And you need to trust the people that you're going on the journey with. And, and it really matters what that roadmap is and whether someone's trying to build, build, build like we are or milk the company for the short-term investor. And we have seen in our industry, and frankly, our company's growth has benefited from, unfortunately, people who invest and then divest, invest and then divest. And that, as soon as they divest, our districts are very sophisticated. They'll get rid of it and find somebody else. You mentioned service earlier that is so key. Um, talk about that a little bit. How, how does that fit into your view of software as a service? It came to me as I was uh, visiting the districts and so forth that how hard the jobs are we give these school officials. I know a few people who could do them well when I talk to my business friends and describe the job. They're, they're sort of stunned. But it, the, the thought that you would have to worry about school buses and labor issues that are union debates, school boards that are in transition and always kind of some are healthy and some are not healthy. Special ed, common core. I'm raising two teenagers right now, Tom, and I'm I'm glad it's only two. The fact of, you know, a thousand of them in the building, that's not so simple. Yeah. And uh, particularly with all the rules that you have. And uh, the notion that you would know what the latest technology is and be able to be an expert at that at the same time, that will never happen. 
they need to depend on us to be expert for them. And that's a little hard because schools don't like giving up that control, but it's, we're changing all the time. They can't keep up with it because last year alone, I already had 46 separate releases. Wow. Now maybe, maybe our customers noticed maybe 12 of those releases because they were bigger, but there were a lot of other little things going on to make it work smoother, go faster, so forth. And you can't keep up if one piece of software in your school among the very many pieces of software has 46 releases, how the heck are you going to keep up? So that means we need to give world-class service. We need to know their usage every day. I need to know every professional development person's review the moment they leave there, which is access. I have that data today. I know how everyone's doing every moment. We have to be able to answer the phone call rather than an 800 number. You have to have the cell phone number of your account manager because uh, things are moving too fast and they're in very complicated organizations that are sometimes very healthy, sometimes very political, all over the map, certainly starved for money in most every case. And uh, so uh, we made a pact with ourselves that um, when you're with us for a year, the number one thing you're going to say about us is we're the best service providers in the country. Now, I have to be careful not to go bankrupt doing that um, because schools are sometimes insatiable and they'll never stop asking. And uh, we have a, uh, you know, they can't afford to pay that much. But uh, I think it's essential to create change. And, and one thing that I found is, is that great service leads to great product development. So our ratio of service people to salespeople, I think, uh, I can't know this because I haven't studied it, but it's, it's 5.3 to 1. In other words, I have 5.3 people in service. And I'm not talking about product development or finance or anything. So I'm talking about people who are out in the field doing service or tech support people, that kind of thing. 5.3 to 1. And, uh, uh, you know, thank goodness we've been able to have a long-term view of that because that's led – to our growth. And now uh, we're just uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll have over 10% of the kids in the United States using iReady. Wow. Yes. Thank you. And uh, people say it's the product and I'm telling you it's the service. Where do you see the ed tech market headed? You know, I have no idea. I can't keep track of it. I really back to those, those little decisions, those little levers. We, we have a list that's literally 155 pages long of things that our educators want us to do frankly, for free, <laughs> to add to the product. And I don't think there's a big idea. I think it's a thousand little ideas of fine-tune this, make these lessons better, make it easier to go from assessment to instruction, figure out how to get rid of assessment time, increase instruction time, right. make parent portals, other things. I just have to do what they say. And I don't really pay attention to the competition or the industry that much. I'm just going to do what they say. We have enough of them to know uh, what to do based on their feedback. In, in terms of what you see your school clients uh, doing, what, what does it look like around the corner in terms of uh, school models, trends in instruction? What, what are you paying the most attention to? Well, I think uh, there are a number of things. Of course, there's the changes in devices, not only going from uh, mobile to tablet, but different types of uh, devices everywhere. So that's uh, something right. that's pronounced. Just in the last two years, the rise in, in Chromebooks and the plummeting prices have really brought most schools pretty close to one-to-one. It's almost closed the access gap, which has been a big, important development yeah. for you. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, uh, I'm so excited about that. If you're in the adaptive business, which means that you need to ping the server each time back and forth, 
native applications that are happening on some different companies' tablets are very hard to deal with because you, you don't want the information resident on that tablet. Right. You might have to share that tablet and so forth. The fact that you can go back and forth from a server with that information and adjust the learning all the time is key, and the Chromebooks are a great way to do that. So, you know, I think there's a lot more acceptance of technology. Uh, the biggest thing time that we've come to, and this happened in business in the 1980s and beginning 1990s, is that we, we, had, we shoved all this technology at people, and it actually didn't increase productivity, right? Right. So what I'm starting to see now that I'm super bullish on for education in the United States is, is uh, in, in the world, frankly, is that I'm starting to see productivity. I'm starting to see these technologies, not only our own, but technologies that allow teachers and students and administrators to be more productive, that actually takes away some work so they can increase instruction, increase the time that they're working with individual learners, separating and individualizing learners so they're not shoving everything in the middle when children are behind or ahead. And that productivity gain, I think, is is coming. It, it, it's been a long time uh, to get here, but, uh, but I'm excited about that. And in, in Miami-Dade, they've already taken out 240 minutes of of assessment in a, in a, in a grade and a subject. And, uh, uh, because they're using, uh, our tool and some other things are doing. And if you think about that, that's almost a full week of, of English or math that they're gaining by not having that. They have more information than they've ever had with our tool. And they reduced the number of instruments, not only for the amount the students have, but that the teachers don't have to train on and so forth. So it just, everything got simpler and, uh, they're, they're real leaders in that area. And, we're going to see that a bunch of places on a number of fronts where teachers and students and administrators are getting more productive. That productivity is going to make technology more and more accepted and lead to great things, particularly for kids who are way behind. Let's close with some thoughts on organizational leadership. Um, th- this is, as I said at the outset, one of the real success stories. We've talked about the long-term view. We've talked about the importance of talent. What else is part of the Curriculum Associates uh, uh, success story? I would say a humility and listening. I, I, I'll tell you a quick experience I had when I just came out of business school. I was assigned to manage the Garden City, Long Island Test Prep Center for Kaplan. And uh, I was all excited by being able to have a management role. And I got there on the first day and realized that I had no idea how to manage and I was scared to death. And there were two people there who were not college-educated, Gloria and Maria, that I managed. And no one had really paid attention and listened to them, but they'd been there for years. And I actually listened to them, and they told me exactly what to do. And uh, that literally, when, when I, you know, the, the center's uh, revenue went up by 40% within uh, eight weeks, the profitability doubled. And uh, we can go into those details another day, but I swear to you, Every single idea I ever had in the, that first year came from Gloria Maria, who just hadn't had an advocate. And then later, the turnaround of Kaplan that led to the great growth of Kaplan. There were a whole lot of ideas that came from Gloria Maria, and uh, I actually wrote them down. And from that day forward, I learned the folks doing the work are less smarter than me, and my job is to be an advocate. And I try to, you know, I screw that up every once in a while, but... Mostly, my, I believe my job is just do what the smart people who are living it every day say we should do and figure out how to be their advocate and get out of the way otherwise. And, and uh, if you look at Curriculum Associates, very few good decisions were made by Rob Waldron. Uh, the rest were made by people here, and I just made sure that we had great people to, to make that happen. And it's uh, very little to do about my leadership. But it included 
interviewing all those people. So making, you know, making talent a priority. Nobody joins the organization that's not a, right, a, a cultural uh, and talent addition. And, and making that a personal priority uh, seems like an important lesson. Well, that, or the lesson is, is that it's, it's, I'm so busy in the interview room, I couldn't screw up the company. <laughs> but it's all about talent. Curriculum Associates is a, is a great success story. Rob, congratulations on eight amazing years. You guys have made a, a huge contribution to U.S. and uh, world education. Thanks, Rob. All right. Well, thanks, Tab. You have a great day. This podcast is being brought to you by Curriculum Associates. To learn more about their mission, team, and resources available for classrooms and schools, visit CurriculumAssociates.com or follow them on Twitter at CurriculumASSOC. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and be sure to rate us as well. And for more on all things innovations and learning, check out GettingSmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica and Kat signing off.